Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. We are uh, continuing our series, Little by Little, Finding Your Identity in Christ. And uh, the title of the message is The Riddle of Life. And uh, I wonder if some of you would describe your life as sometimes feeling like a riddle. Like you just feel like you're looking for the answer or the solution to your life. And I was thinking about riddles this week because anytime I think of a title or as I'm preparing a message, I always think of a lot of different things and my mind kind of goes in a lot of different places. And I was reminded that when I was going through college, uh, I was working at a coffee shop in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, this guy would often just continually tell me riddles to the point where it started to annoy me because I never got the answers to these riddles. And it was always frustrating to me. And I think he liked watching me get frustrated as well. Or as sometimes my parents would say, I'd have smoke coming out of my ears because I was thinking too hard. But um, I often would uh, like riddles. Sometimes I didn't like riddles. But I thought today, since we're talking about the riddle of life, I would share a couple riddles with you today. So last service, they were pretty on point with this. So not to say there's a competition. There's a competition. All right. So uh, the the first riddle is this. What has to be broken before you can use it? An egg. Yep. Hey, you know what? Give yourselves a round of applause, man. Uh, That's good. I was dumb. I didn't know this at all. I was like, um, a person that God wants to use? I wasn't even that spiritual. It's just an egg. (laughs) Here's the second one. I am tall when I am young, and I'm short when I'm old. What am I? Candle. Yes, that's right. Somebody said an old person. I was like, well, it's true too. I guess as you get older, you do shrink. (laughs) But yes, it is a candle. Good for you guys. You guys, hey, you're the smartest service. All right. Don't tell the other people I said that. All right. So, um, but I think at some level, we all like riddles because they cause us to pause and to think a little bit, right? Like, uh, if you can figure out the answer, you feel intelligent, you feel smart, you're a little like, I got it, I got the answer, I'm feeling good about yourself. Or if you're like me, and you didn't get it, and you had to ask for the answer, you feel a little dumb and a little stupid, and you're like, why can't I ever seem to get these? The answer's so obvious. But whether you're in the smart camp, or like me, the dumb camp, and you just can't figure it out, I think we all like riddles at some level, because for all of us, it gives us this, oh, I get it moment, Right? Like we all have that aha moment. And Paul here in our text in Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 13, he's telling us about the oldest riddle of all time. And it's finally been solved. And he's like, you should care about this riddle here in Ephesians chapter 3 because this riddle has the power to change your life. And this riddle is so profound that when you finally understand the answer to this riddle, you can't wait to share it with other people. And the riddle, or as Paul puts it, the mystery that he's talking about here is the gospel of Jesus. And that's one of Paul's favorite ways of describing the gospel as a mystery. And just for clarity's sake, when I say the word gospel, I mean the good news of Jesus, that Jesus came to this earth, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we should have died, was buried, rose again three days later, conquering sin and death. And because of that, God has given us the gift of grace. He's given us salvation. He has redeemed us, not because of who we are or anything that we've done, but because of who God is. And salvation is offered to anyone who believes in him. And so today, when I say the word gospel, that's what I mean. 
And so this mystery is that God has a plan for sinners. And it isn't something that we have to solve. It's that God has been revealing this gospel mystery or this gospel riddle over time. And now he entrusts us with the gospel. This has always been God's plan since the foundations of the earth. But if you've read the passage at the very end in verse 13, Paul makes this plea to these believers in Ephesus. He goes, please, please do not lose heart. He's like, don't don't lose the will to continue to move on. Because again, Paul is writing this to a group of believers who are in Ephesus. And what they're experiencing at this time is they're in a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus. And quite frankly, they're not okay with people who do believe in Jesus. And what these believers are experiencing is that they've been pushed to the outside of society. And they're experiencing things being taken away from them. And Paul says, don't lose heart. I think he can probably sense that some of these uh, Christians in Ephesus are starting to lose heart. They're starting to lose the will to keep going on. That he feels like they're on the edge and they're experiencing a loss of heart. Now, our circumstances may not look exactly like those in Ephesus and the people who are facing them, but it's easy for us centuries later to still lose heart in the face of the challenges that we face today. As we experience what it's like to be someone who believes in Jesus in a culture that doesn't believe in Jesus. And quite frankly, it's getting a little more hostile to those of us who believe in Jesus. And so we experience some of these things. We can experience some of the isolation that can come from knowing Jesus, even in our own families. I've talked to people who have said, I found Jesus, and their family wants nothing to do with them. They cast them away. They push them to the outside. And so they feel isolated and alone, and they feel like they're on the edge of their life. They're starting to lose heart. I've talked to people at work. You know what it's like. You don't get into the office gossip. You know that that's not what you should be doing. You don't go with those group of coworkers to that place because you know that it wouldn't be honoring and pleasing to God. And so you know what it's like to stand up for Jesus in the workplace and feel isolation and separation from everybody else. And those are just the external things that we face. There's an internal struggle as well. It's easy to lose heart as we begin to believe, well, I'm not sure that God is listening anymore. Or we believe thoughts that I'm not sure that God's good enough or that he's actually going to forgive me this time. And so we have this internal dialogue going on in our minds. And so we're just kind of lose heart. We're just kind of done or we see ourselves going that way. But what Paul is saying and his desire for us is to see what he sees. Paul says, I want you to see my life and your life from the gospel perspective. When you feel like you uh, are looking for the answer to the riddle of your life, see your life from a gospel perspective. And when you see your life through that perspective, it'll change how you see everything. It'll change how you see God, how you see yourself, and how you see other people. It changes our everyday circumstances. And what Paul is getting at is that when we take our eyes off the gospel, when we take our eyes off of Jesus's death and resurrection, when that stops becoming the most dominant thought, the most invading thought in our minds, the biggest reality in our lives, that's when we lose perspective. That's when we begin to lose heart. And so the passage here in Ephesians chapter three is really about solving the riddle of our life. And the way that we solve the riddle of our life is with a proper perspective with a gospel perspective. 
And so Paul will encourage us today with four things to help us keep the right perspective so that we don't lose heart. And the first one is we have an attitude of a steward. That we have an attitude of a steward. Look at verse 2. Paul says this, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul here in verse 2 is referring to himself as a steward of grace. The word steward means a caretaker of something valuable. But there's this tiny little phrase in verse 2 that is completely key to how Paul thinks about the gospel and thinks about grace. And it happens so quickly in this set of verses that if you blink, you can miss it entirely. And he says this word, given to me for you. Now, I think this is an interesting way to describe grace. Because when all of us hear the word grace, we all think that this is something given to us, right? I mean, most of the New Testament is all about God's grace being given to us, that we are sinners in need of God's grace. Paul, for the last three chapters, has been telling us that we need grace. Grace has been given to us. When we come to church, that's normally how we think and talk about grace, as something given to us. And none of those are wrong. Those are absolutely right. Those are correct ways of thinking about God's grace. But Paul's almost like, you're only seeing it in 2D. You need to have a third dimension to God's grace. And Paul says that this grace is given to us and for others. In Paul's mind, grace was given to him, but not just for him, but for other people as well. In other words, that it comes to him for the purpose of working its way through him. We could say it this way. God's grace goes through us, not just to us. God's grace is not clearly just a one-time exchange between us and God. If that was the case, the minute that we surrendered our lives, the minute we gave our lives over to God, then we might as well just go up to heaven because then we have no use anymore here on earth. But it's not just a one-time exchange. We are more like channels that receive grace and then we spread it out to other people. So we aren't just recipients of God's grace. We are dispensers of God's grace to other people. That's how grace was intended to function. And what Paul is trying to help the Ephesians and us thousands of years later to understand is that we need grace. We need to recapture this idea that we are stewards of God's grace, that we are managers of God's grace. Because when we understand that we are a steward of God's grace, it totally changes our identity. But that's not what we tend to do, right? What we tend to do is we place our, our identity in what we do, what we have, or who we have. And when we do that, when we place our identity in those things, we'll always find ourselves disappointed. Because we all know the reality, possessions, positions, and people will always let us down. Things will fail us. People will sin against us. And so if we put all of our identity in those things, we'll eventually get disappointed and we lose our identity and then we start to lose heart. So for example, if your job is who you are, then what do you do when you hate your job? What meaning do you find in that? Or what if there's an identity that you desire? You think, well, I want this job. I want to be married. I want to be a parent. I want to go to this school. But what happens if that never happens to you? What if you never get that identity? And because that never happens, you don't know who you are. 
Or what if it's an identity that we had, but now you've lost it? Maybe it was a title. Maybe it was something, a job that you had. Maybe it was something in life. It was some sort of identity, some title that you had, but now you lost it and you don't know who you are anymore. See, being a dad is only part of who I am. Being a pastor is only part of who I am. Being a loving, funny, hilarious, gracious, loving, awesome husband. (laughs) I don't know why you guys are laughing. I think those are all true things. (laughs) You can ask Jen. She'll confirm all of that. Um, Are all just a part of who I am. Those aren't all who I am, though. That's only just a part of it. See, we're not first and foremost a parent, a spouse, an employee, a friend. We are those things. Those are titles given to us. But from a gospel perspective, we are a steward of God's grace wherever we are, in whatever position we have, and with anything that we own. So that job that you hate, you are called to be a steward of God's grace in that place. You're a parent. You have those kids. You were called to be a steward of God's grace to those kids. Even when you go, these aren't my kids. My kids would not act like this. Even when they act like little demon monsters running around your house, you are first and foremost called to be a steward of God's grace to them. In the relationship that you're in, whether it's healthy or dysfunctional, you are called to be a steward of God's grace in that relationship. In whatever situation you find yourself in today, you are called to be a steward of God's grace first. And when you get that identity order correct, that you're a steward of God's grace, and then you're everything else, second, third, fourth, and fifth, that's when it allows you to become a better person. Or as we should all be striving, a more godlier person. It causes us to be more godlier parents, students, bosses, employees, friends, and spouses. So if you're starting to lose heart, Paul's reminding us that we have to have an identity as a steward of God's grace. Here's the second thing. We have a spirit of others-centeredness. A spirit of other-centeredness. Look at verse 6. It says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying. He says, the mystery is that Gentiles, which is just another name of saying non-Jewish people, that Gentiles now can belong to the family of God just like Jewish people could. Now, I know that a lot of us, this isn't groundbreaking news. I know a lot of you didn't get on your phone or text your friend or jump on social media and say, I can't believe what I just heard at church today. Non-Jewish people can be in God's family too. That's not groundbreaking news to any of us because we've been talking about this over the last few weeks and regardless of how familiar you are with the Bible, we're all pretty clear on that idea. But listen, this is, this is the reason why it's so big de- such a big deal for Paul because from the very beginning of the Bible, God chose the Jewish people or the nation of Israel to be his hand-picked representatives here on earth. But that at the same time was never the full plan. It was never just about them. As you read all throughout the Old Testament, you can see that there are kind of these clues or breadcrumbs or hints along the way that God choosing Israel was never about Israel. It's always been about the rest of the world knowing who God was. 
And we've been talking about how there was this division in this church between Jewish people and Gentile people, and that Jesus came to unite everyone under Christ. And this isn't an ancient problem. We still have it today, but I would even argue the division is greater now than it ever has been before. Because listen, it's not just between one group of people and another group of people in our very individualistic culture, in our consumer culture that we live in, it tells us that we or I am the most important. And so the division has maybe shifted a little bit between me and everyone else. In a culture that tells you that what you desire, what you believe, what you want, what is your personal truth is the most important thing that makes everyone else in your life second-class citizens, even if you say that you love them. And we buy into that because that's the natural position of our heart. We want to believe that we are king. We want to believe that we are queen. I was reminded of that this last week. This, uh, this parking lot isn't empty after we leave church. It fills up. We have tenants that come and go in our parking lot. And so um, it fills up with different people. And uh, I was reminded this last week that I've been, I have to go left on Riverside. And so there have been times that people have cut me off as I'm trying to go left because they need to go right. And it frustrates me. I think, oh, you think you're the most important person? You know, then I put myself, oh, I'm the most important person. Or, you know, we, uh, or there's been times in this parking lot where people have given me a finger and it's not a thumbs up like, hey, you're doing a good job or anything like that. It's a whole other finger. I'm like, what are we doing here? But there's this one time, this guy just pulled right out of the parking space. I mean, I think he thought he was the only one in this parking lot. And I had to slam on my brakes so I didn't hit him. And I remember he looked at me like, what's your problem? I'm like, I'm just trying to leave. What's your problem? Do you know who I am? Do you know that I own this parking lot? You know, like, get out of my way, you know? And, and I am the most important person. Make way. Like, I almost kind of thought of the uh, Aladdin song, Make Way, except it's Make Way for Prince Nate. Like, that's how... I felt in that moment. I was like, get out of my way. But that's the natural position of my heart, that it's me and everyone else is second-class citizens. But we do this all the time. We do this at restaurants, right? Why'd they get their food first? I was here first. My order's a lot more simple. I was even reading on the Chick-fil-A app that said, if you have come to Chick-fil-A and you park first and someone parks after you, and they leave before you do, it's not because your order has been forgotten. It's just, you know, and they give their explanation of it's less complicated or we had it on hand. Like, basically what they're saying is you don't know what everybody's ordered, so calm down. So even at the Lord's Holy Temple of Chick-fil-A, they're even having some problems too. (laughs) But we do this all the time. Driving, this is my lane. I'm first, get behind me. Everybody has to come behind me. You know, we do this at school, we do this at home, we do this at work, we even do this at church with people that we say that we love. Here's the challenge that I would say to us today. What if we made Awaken Church more about caring for other people and less about us? Think about how radically our church would change if you showed up and you genuinely believed that we existed for others in this church, that we were first and foremost stewards of God's grace? How would it change relationships if we realized that we were, we were here for the good of others and to serve them and not the other way around? You know, last week we talked about God's household. 
and how in God's household, there's a certain economy to it. There's certain rhythms to God's household. And so we talked about the importance of being in groups and how we all need to be in community with one another. We talked about how we need to be serving, that our goal is to reach more people to, uh, for Jesus. And the only way that we can reach more people is if we have more people. And so there are plenty of teams all around this campus who need help. And we talked about uh, awaking kids more specifically. And I'm here to say there were at least eight families who answered the call to that. And I want to celebrate that because I think that's an awesome thing. That there were people who said, you know what, I'm not just going to sit on the sidelines. I'm not going to say, well, what am I going to do now if somebody can't take my kids? Or what am I going to do now if there's a seating problem or anything like that? But what can I do to help? What if we genuinely believe that we were here to serve other people and we were here for their good and not the other way around? How would it change our worship if we didn't come here and be like, well, you know, I don't like that worship set. Like, what's going on with that? You know, like they didn't sing any of my favorite songs. They didn't even sing the most popular song right now on the radio. Like uh, when I'm driving, sometimes I got to pull over because they're singing this great song. Why don't we ever sing this song? What if instead we came to church and we were like, whatever the song is, it's reminding me of who God is, what he's done and how he has saved me. It would change how we worship. Think about how it would change our marriages if we didn't criticize our spouse on how well they served me, but how well I served them. Think about how it would change the way that we relate to one another if we realized that our friend or our spouse was in need of grace equally as much as we were. See, a true gospel perspective, a perspective of other-centeredness, comes from the knowledge that God gives grace equally to anyone who would believe in him. Because the reality for all of us is we all stand equally bankrupt before God. That's where the true gospel, other-centeredness, comes from. See, when we have a gospel perspective, what it does is it takes our eyes off of ourselves. We draw our eyes up to heaven. We remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done. And when we bring our eyes back to earth and we look externally to everybody and the situations around us, we then place people above ourselves. We need to make sure that when we start to lose heart, we put other people ahead of ourselves. It's a gospel of others-centeredness. Here's the third thing. Paul's telling us we have confidence in God's character. We have confidence in God's character. Verse 11 says this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. See, what Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12 here is that we can approach God with total and complete confidence. Now, some of us, the reason why we don't approach someone in confidence is usually because there's something that we've done that's foolish or we owe someone a debt. And so we know that we don't want to go talk to them because it's probably going to involve an apology. And so we try to avoid them as much as possible. We don't want to go to them because we're afraid of what we've done. Or we don't go to them because we're afraid of who they are. We don't know how they're going to react or what they're going to do when we go to them. But what Paul is saying here is that's not how it works with God. It's not at all how God works. You can bring your problems. You can bring your cares, your concerns, your worries, your problems, your troubles before God. He wants to hear those things. He's not going to be taken back by those things. He knows about them. 
You could come before him with confidence with your sins, no matter how big or how little you think your sins are. You can come confidently before God with complete confidence because we don't need to wonder if God is good or if he's listening or if he will forgive us this time. Because this is what Paul is saying. And really, it's the crux of these sets of verses. He's saying this, the evidence of the gospel, the fact that Jesus lived and he died for you, you should never doubt God's record of integrity and goodness and faithfulness and mercy to you. And you can approach him with complete confidence because of what Jesus has done. See, God had this plan of redemption since the beginning of time. You can go all the way back to Genesis when Adam and Eve uh, chose sin. They chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they chose sin. God had a plan to reunite all of creation under him. And listen, this plan isn't going to stop with you. God will redeem you. God will forgive you. And God will love you. If you just come to him, like Ephesians 12 is telling us, with confidence through faith in him. And you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, well, you know, I can sin. Let me tell you, I've, I've invented sinning on a whole new level. You don't know the kinds of things that I'm capable of. And I would say anybody in this room would say the same thing if they are in Christ. They'd say, you don't know the kinds of things I did. I would say my own life, the things that I've done, the things that uh, have marked me, the things that I have regrets over in my own life. There are things that I would go, I could never how could, God, could, how could God ever forgive me? He never could. But God has forgiven me. And he's loved me because I've come to him. And I've given him all of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame. And he's clothed me in righteousness. But the reality for a lot of us here is that we would say, well, you know what? The things that I've done are bad. And we could even take it a step further and say, well, look throughout the Bible. You know, Peter, we've talked about Peter before. Peter was a guy that I think I identify with the most in all of the Bible. Jesus told Peter, hey, I'm going to build my church on you. And people would have laughed at that. Like, Peter's a weak guy. Like, he's got so many character flaws. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to build it on Peter? Like, that's a kind of a joke, right, Jesus? Jesus wasn't messing around with that. You know, Peter, he did have a lot of character flaws. He would always speak his mind, act on impulse. Listen, Peter even denied Jesus three times as Jesus was going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. But yet, afterward, Jesus forgave him, loved him, restored him, and used him. Peter was never too far from God's grace. Paul, the writer of this letter and most of the New Testament, He would say his resume of sinning, he was the chief of sinners. And he was the worst of them all. He thought he was doing the Lord's work, but in fact, he was actually not doing that at all. He went out to kill Christians, persecute Christians, put them in jail. He was doing all kinds of things to squash Christianity. Paul would say, I'm the chief of sinners, but he had an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. The good news for you today is that you are never too far from the love and grace of God. And all you have to do is approach him with confidence and believe in faith in him. And if you're here today, and maybe you're here and you've been far from Christ, you're just kind of checking out what church is all about because you feel like you need something else. And you realize that you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be smart enough. You're never going to work your way into heaven enough. Maybe you realize your sins. In a few moments, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus into your life. Maybe you're here and you're just kind of coming back to church. 
Maybe there's something that's happened in your life. You feel like you've hit rock bottom and you don't know what else to do. And so you're just kind of like, man, when I was with Jesus, that's when everything was going well. And maybe today you just need to come back home to Jesus. You need to ask him into your heart and into your life again. And in a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to do that, to come boldly before God and confess what you need to confess to get right with him. Here's the last thing Paul's telling us. If you feel like you're losing heart, remember this. We have a hope in suffering. We have a hope in suffering. Here in chapter 3 is the first time that we know that Paul is in a bad situation. This is the first time that Paul admits and even addresses the fact that he is in jail. We've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, that Paul's writing this letter in a Roman prison cell, but this is the first time we officially know that. In fact, look at what it says in verse 1. It says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. I don't know if you caught what he said or not in here, but he said that he is a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And when I read that at first, I thought that was a little weird. It seemed a little odd to me. Because I would expect Paul to say, hey, I'm a prisoner for, of men. I'm a prisoner in Rome, to, chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison cell. I'm a prisoner to Caesar. But he doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't mention any of those things because that's not Paul's identity. He's, it's not who he is. His circumstances, his suffering does not define his identity in Christ. And he's telling this Ephesian church and to us that our suffering does not define who we are. Paul says, I am here because of Christ. I am here because of the gospel of Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Christ. He defines my identity. He's like, my suffering does not define who I am. I am defined by what the gospel does. We are not defined by our suffering or what we're going through. We, aren't defi- we are defined, though, by the gospel, and it reminds us of who we are. It reminds us, too, that this life isn't all that there is. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus today, you are not what has been done to you, and you are not what has happened to you. For example, if you're here and you're divorced, divorce is not your identity. Your first and primary relationship is in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. That's your identity. If you're here today and you feel isolated and alone, you feel like an orphan, that's not your identity. If you are in Christ Jesus, we are told that God has adopted you into the family of God, that God is your father and you have all of us as your brothers and sisters. So you aren't alone. You aren't isolated. You aren't doing life on an island all unto yourself. We have each other. We are one giant family. That's who we are. Or maybe you're here today and you're reminded of your past sins or the regrets that you have in your life, and you feel like your life will always be defined by these sins, that I am this person, or I am that person, or that I looked at pornography too much, or that I'm an alcoholic, or that I did drugs, and you feel like that that is what your life will always be defined, that I'm a failure, that I can never do it, and Jesus would say, that's not how it works. He says, if you are in me, you are a new creation. Those old things are gone, and you are are new. You are new in me. That is your identity. See, Jesus is familiar with our struggles as well. 
Jesus knows that what we go through, he went through as well. He's even familiar with the most basic needs of our life. Jesus started his ministry hungry, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, hungry. He ended his ministry three years later, dying on the cross for the sins of the world, thirsty. He is most familiar with all of the struggles and everything you go through. You can, he knows about your sins because he sinned? No, because he knows everything about you. Your sins aren't going to shock him and throw him off and be like, I didn't know that's who he is. Yo, you are a creation of his. He knows your sins and you can come to him and confess those sins because listen, God uses everything in your life, however painful, however embarrassing for your good. And you want to know something about God? God loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. The thing that you wish were most removed from your life are often the very things that God is using to shape you, to mold you, and to make you into the Christian, the believer, the child of God that he wants to make you in. He wants to use that problem, that pain, that situation. He wants to use those things for good in your life. See, there's something more important than the pain that you're going through. It's what you're learning from that pain. Your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain. No matter what pain you've gone through, Jesus wants to redeem that suffering. He doesn't want it to be wasted. He wants to uh, use it to help other people who are in a similar situation. And that's what Paul is getting at here. It's your pain, your suffering. Those aren't who you are. Jesus is your identity. And that's what Ephesians does for us. It reminds us of the riddle of our life. It reminds us of our answer. That in Christ, we are blessed and we are loved, that we are saved. It reminds us that we're holy, forgiven, adopted, chosen, that we are rich in grace, that we are sealed, that we are gifted, that we are alive, that we are raised up, and that we have peace. And quite frankly, that's only some of what we've talked about so far in Ephesians. There's so much more. And all of this is a gift from Jesus because of what Jesus has done for us. Not because of who we are, not because of the things that we've done, or because we have certain character traits that God is pleased with. It's because of Jesus. And listen, no one and nothing can take that away from you. Paul's encouragement is that we as a group of believers, as we experience suffering, as we read about and watch Paul suffer, that we would not lose heart. Because if the gospel is all that we have, then we still have everything. If the gospel is all that we ever end up having, then we still have everything. And so maybe you're here today and you feel like your life feels like one giant riddle and you're wondering why you're going through the things that you're going through or maybe you feel like you're starting to lose heart. My encouragement to you would be get a gospel perspective because when you get that gospel perspective, it changes how you see everything. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.